Hello, I'm R.A. Spratt. I write and perform this podcast. If you'd like to support the show, I'm a children's author, so you can buy a book by me, or you can buy me a coffee by going to buymeacoffee.com slash stories R.A. Spratt. It's an easy way to make a small thank you gift to the show so I can keep kicking this can down the road. The podcast directory you're using right now should have a link to my Buy Me A Coffee page in the show notes, or you can type it into your browser. That's buymeacoffee.com slash stories R.A. Spratt. All contributions are gratefully appreciated. Hello and welcome to Bedtime Stories with me, R.A. Spratt. Well, today's story is a Nanny Piggins one, and it's from Nanny Piggins and the Pursuit of Justice, or as I like to think of it, book six. So I'm going to read to you chapter four, which is called Madam Piggins and the Psychic Gift. Here we go. Nanny Piggins had never been so bored in her life. When she agreed to chaperone the children's school excursion as part of her community service, she'd assumed they'd be going somewhere interesting, like a scorpion farm, or a hot air balloon race, or at the very least, to a cake factory. But no, Headmaster Pimplestock had organised it, so they were traipsing around the National Transport Museum. To Nanny Piggins' way of thinking, museums were boring at the best of times, but to have an entire museum that only featured different forms of transport was too boring to be true. If she had to look at another train or bus while the curator droned on and on about kilowatts and talk, she was sure she would slip into a coma. The worst part was that the museum was supposed to be about transport, but there was not a single room devoted to the history of the flying pig. Her own life story would have been a thousand times more interesting than Adrian Cricklestein's, the inventor of the cog, and he had a whole display. On top of that, the children were being forced to fill out a ridiculous questionnaire written by Headmaster Pimplestock to prove that they had listened to every word the curator said – which totally prevented them from ignoring the curator and nipping off to the coffee shop for a few slices of cheesecake with their nanny. So Nanny Piggins was standing there, in a room full of antique Victorian water pumps, trying to keep herself awake by thinking up new recipes for chocolate ice cream, perhaps more chocolate, when something caught her eye. Through a doorway at the far end of the room, she caught a glimpse of something red and shiny. Without thinking, her trotters were drawn towards it. "'Where are you going?' whispered Samantha, as her nanny began to wander away. "'As far away from that dreadful curator as possible,' said Nanny Piggins. "'Then I'm coming too,' said Michael, dumping his questionnaire in a bin. Derek followed, reasoning that he was the oldest, so it would be irresponsible to let his little brother get in trouble all alone. And Samantha chased after them because, much as she did not want to get in trouble, she did not like being the one left behind to answer the angry and difficult questions. So Nanny Piggins and the children left the dreary Victorian water pump room and entered a huge, airy pavilion with a high glass ceiling so they could see the sunshine and blue sky above. But that was not the best thing about the room. The best thing was 
that it was chock full of dozens and dozens of aeroplanes. There were modern jets, old propeller planes and funny looking water planes. Some hung from the ceiling, some stood up on pedestals and some were parked on the ground. But the brightest and shiniest of all was the one Nanny Piggins had spotted first. It was a bright red World War I triplane with German insignia, so it was much, much more exciting than a Victorian water pump. What a pretty machine, said Nanny Piggins. What is it? It's a German fighter plane from the First World War, explained Derek. He'd been forced to study World War I only the previous term. That's a plane, exclaimed Nanny Piggins. I don't believe it. Where does everybody sit? Well, the pilot sits there and the passenger sits there, said Derek, pointing to the two openings in the chassis. But where does the stewardess sit and how does she get the drinks cart up and down, asked Nanny Piggins, totally baffled. I don't think they had drinks carts on World War I fighter planes, said Samantha. No drinks cart, exclaimed a horrified Nanny Piggins. Next you'll be telling me they didn't serve an in-flight meal. Well, began Samantha. No in-flight meal? gasped Nanny Piggins. No wonder they were at war. They must have been so unhappy. Nanny Piggins leaned her trotter on the wing of the plane, then immediately recoiled. This isn't a real plane. It's a forgery, cried Nanny Piggins. It is, said Michael, totally delighted. He enjoyed it when his nanny started denouncing people. And if she discovered a forgery, it was sure to lead to a lot of denouncing. Listen, continued Nanny Piggins, rapping on the wing of the plane again. It's hollow, and I think it's made of canvas. Maybe planes were made of canvas back in the old days, suggested Samantha. Don't be ridiculous. What would happen if it rained, said Nanny Piggins. Samantha had the mental image of a plane all limp and floppy like a wet beach towel. No, someone must have stolen the real plane and replaced it with this canvas replica, said Nanny Piggins. Well, there's only one way we can find out for sure. Call the police and ask them to bring down a forensic team to carbon date the material, suggested Derek. No, turn it on and see if it flies, declared Nanny Piggins. Oh, no, said Samantha, sitting down on the ground and taking out her lunch. Not so she could eat anything, but so she could use the brown paper bag to hyperventilate into. But that'll never work, protested Derek. Why not, asked Nanny Piggins, as she walked around the plane, kicking the chocks out from under the wheels. This is a museum, isn't it? They're supposed to have restored everything to perfect working condition. But would there be petrol in the engine, asked Michael. I don't see why not, said Nanny Piggins. When the Germans lost the war, I expect they had a lot more important things to think about than whether or not they'd siphoned all the petrol out of their planes. Anyway, we'll soon see. Nanny Piggins hopped into the pilot's seat. Oh dear, moaned Samantha as she tucked her head between her knees, partly to avoid fainting and partly so she would not have to see her beloved Nanny come to harm. Oh, look, said Nanny Piggins delightedly. The German flying ace who last used this plane left his goggles under the seat. How thoughtful of him. Nanny Piggins put on the goggles and revved the engine. It can't be fake. That engine sounds fine, said Derek. Oh, we won't know for sure until we take her up, said Nanny Piggins. Up where, asked Michael. Even he was beginning to worry, and generally he was the least inclined to worry of any boy you would care to meet. For a spin, said Nanny Piggins, with a joyous glint in her eye. 
The children had seen that glint before. Nanny Piggins always got it before she threw herself into one of her death-defying stunts, such as being fired out of a cannon, doing a backflip off the clothesline, or returning a library book two days late. Do you know how to fly an aeroplane? asked Derek. I am the world's greatest flying pig, Nanny Piggins reminded him. Yes, but the principles are rather different when you haven't been blasted out of a cannon, argued Derek. Pish, said Nanny Piggins. And with that, she opened the throttle, released the brake, and the plane started to roll forward. At this point, the security guard from the museum started running towards them. Now you might be wondering why he had not taken action sooner, such as when Nanny Piggins turned on the noisy diesel engine of their 95-year-old German triplane. But you have to understand that the security guard was a little deaf, and he had fallen asleep while lip-reading the curator's incredibly boring talk on Victorian water pumps taking place in the next room. But an elderly man with a heart condition was never going to run down Nanny Piggins in an aeroplane. She shot down the full length of the hall, which was perfectly safe because the museum was so boring there were no members of the public for her to crash into. And then, just as Samantha hid her face in her jumper because she didn't want to see her nanny slam into a brick wall, the plane took off. And as it lifted up into the air, the triplane transformed from a rickety old thing banging along the ground into an elegant flying machine soaring through the sky. Well, as much sky as there was inside the room. Luckily for Nanny Piggins, it was a huge room, so she could comfortably do loop-de-loops around and around. Stop that pig! screamed the curator as he ran into the pavilion. How? asked the befuddled security guard. Do I have to do everything myself? complained the curator. And with that, he leapt into a World War I British biplane, turned on the engine and took off after Nanny Piggins. Goodness knows what he thought he could do to get Nanny Piggins to come down. They may have left petrol in the engines, but the restoration team did have the sense to remove the bullets from the machine guns. So all the curator could do was chase Nanny Piggins around and around, which she rather enjoyed. She did loop the loops and barrel rolls and weaved in between all the planes hanging from the ceiling to confuse him. Then Nanny Piggins flew towards the sun so the curator would lose sight of her before reappearing behind him, blowing raspberries. Down on the ground, all the school children cheered. The most boring school excursion had turned into the world's most exciting school excursion in just a few short moments. Nanny Piggins eventually landed voluntarily when the plane ran out of petrol and started to sputter. She glided to a perfect landing, yanking on the handbrake and rolling the triplane to a halt in exactly the same position she had found it. Unfortunately, the curator was not such an adept pilot. When he tried to land, he came in too fast, skidded all the way along the floor, making a mess of the patina, and slamming into the refrigerated cake stand out the front of the cafeteria, totally ruining the New York cheesecake Nanny Piggins had her eye on for afternoon tea, which so horrified Nanny Piggins that she actually started to cry. Fortunately, licking bits of New York cheesecake off the sides of the smashed refrigerator cake stand soon cheered her up. Many hours later, when Nanny Piggins and the children were finally allowed home, they were not in the highest of spirits. True, Nanny Piggins had not been taken away to jail, which was a good thing. The museum had decided not to press charges because they did not want an inquiry into why two of their aeroplanes on public display had petrol in their engines but they had insisted that she pay for the damages, which seemed bitterly unfair, given that she had not caused any herself. It was the curator who had smashed the expensive refrigerated cake stand. 
But Nanny Pickens did feel bad about ruining a contraption whose sole purpose was displaying cake in ideal conditions, so she agreed to those terms. Where are we going to get $20,000? asked Derek. We could ask Father to lend it to us, suggested Samantha. And then they all burst out laughing at such a ridiculous suggestion. But seriously, children, said Nanny Piggins, we do need a money-making scheme. We could get jobs, suggested Michael. Dear child, said Nanny Piggins, things are bad, but they're not that bad. We could sell something, suggested Derek. Probably not wise, said Nanny Piggins. I think your father is beginning to be suspicious. I sold his antique four-poster bed last week, and he's been muttering about his room not looking quite the way it did. No, what we need is a money-making scheme. The children scratched their heads and thought hard, but they did not know much about money-making schemes. Derek had a vague idea they had something to do with asking people to lend you money, then taking all that money and running away on holiday, which just goes to show Derek actually knew everything you need to know about running a hedge fund. Aha! I've got it, declared Nanny Piggins, leaping up from the sofa. I am going to become a fortune teller. The children were not entirely convinced that becoming a fortune teller was an easy way to make $20,000, but Nanny Piggins seemed even more chipper than usual as she set up a miniature circus tent on the front path outside the front of their house. "'Michael, run and fetch the Nanny Wanted sign from the garage,' said Nanny Piggins. "'You're not going to hire a new nanny, are you?' asked a horrified Michael. "'Of course not. I want to make my own sign,' explained Nanny Piggins." As soon as Michael returned with the old weather-beaten placard, Nanny Piggins repainted it in exotic lettering. Madame Piggins, fortune teller, five dollars. Enter if you dare. She then put on her best silk dressing gown, wrapped a purple scarf about her head, took the statuette of Santa out of a snow globe so it looked like a crystal ball, and then disappeared into the tent. The children stood outside, wondering what would happen next. "'Well, come on,' called Nanny Piggins. "'You've got to come in here too. You're my assistants.' The children breathed a sigh of relief. They might not think fortune-telling was a brilliant money-making scheme, but they were pretty sure watching Nanny Piggins telling fortunes would be brilliantly entertaining. So they sat inside the tent, playing cards with Nanny Piggins and waiting for their first customer. Seven hours later, Nanny Piggins did not seem at all perturbed that there had not been a single person enter the tent. "'It always takes a while to establish a small business,' she said wisely, as she won her 137th game of Snap in a row. They had almost forgotten why they were crouching on the floor of a miniature circus tent when a young woman entered. "'I was just on my way home when I saw your sign,' said the woman. "'You've got a front charging people five dollars to tell them a load of old malarkey.' Nanny Piggins looked the woman up and down, sizing her up. "'As you are my first customer, I am prepared to offer you a discount.' I shall tell you three things from your future for the bargain price of $4.99. All right, said the woman. I could do with a good laugh, and Mum's not expecting me home for another half hour, so I might as well. The young woman sat down and held out her palm for Nanny Piggins to read. Oh, I don't read those, said Nanny Piggins. I rub heads. What? exclaimed Derek. He had not seen that one coming. If you want to know what's really going on inside someone's brain, you can't tell by looking at their hands, said Nanny Piggins, as though this was perfectly obvious. You've got to go right to the source and rub their head. So Nanny Piggins leaned across the table, grabbed the woman's head between her trotters and rubbed it. Hmm, interesting, muttered Nanny Piggins. 
What is it? asked the woman scornfully. Does my dead granny want to tell me to wrap up warm this winter? I'm a fortune teller, not a psychic. Do pay attention, scolded Nanny Piggins, as she continued to rub the woman's head. Okay, I can see it clearly. You are going to... Nanny Piggins paused here for dramatic effect. Yes, said the young woman, who could not help but be curious. Lose a button from your cardigan, said Nanny Piggins, and... Bang your head on a frozen fish and... Meet a man who is always wet. Nanny Piggins then let go of the woman's head and sat back with an air of triumph about her. What? said the young woman. I have made my predictions for your future, said Nanny Piggins with finality. You've talked a load of old hogwash, said the woman. That will be four ninety nine, please, said Nanny Piggins, holding out her trotter. If you think I'm going to pay for that utter, began the young woman. Oh, dear, said Nanny Piggins, suddenly with an edge of menace in her voice. Michael, I think you had better fetch Boris. Who's Boris? asked the young woman. The giant bear who lives in our garden, said Samantha truthfully. I predict he is about to get very angry, said Nanny Piggins. The young woman decided to cut her losses. She handed over the money and left in a sulk, muttering about con artists and how she had a good mind to call the police. That didn't go well, said Derek. We'll see, said Nanny Piggins smugly, whistling to herself as she carefully packed up her fortune-telling paraphernalia. I think that will do for today. But you've only told one fortune, protested Michael, and you only charged four ninety nine, said Samantha, so we've got another nineteen thousand nine hundred ninety five dollars and one cent to earn. All in good time, said Nanny Piggins. Come along. Since you've been such good children, I'll make chocolate fondue for dinner. It's Tuesday. You always make chocolate fondue on Tuesday, said Michael. Yes, I'm lucky that you're always so well behaved on Tuesdays, said Nanny Piggins. Hey parents. Yeah, you. Are you looking for a podcast your kids will really love? Well, we made one just for you. And for us. As genuine, all-natural kids ourselves, we know what makes a fun and interesting podcast. So we decided to make it ourselves. Every show is packed with interviews, stories, and on-the-ground reporting. We have interviewed everyone from scientists to Grammy Award-winning musicians to NFL quarterbacks. Listen to Wild Interest wherever you get your podcasts. The next day, Nanny Piggins kept the children home from school. She rang Headmaster Pipplestock and told him that they had all simultaneously contracted lead poisoning from too much sucking on pencils. She then hung up and took the phone off the hook before he had a chance to consult a medical dictionary. Next, they went outside and began re-erecting the tent. They'd only just got the tent pegs banged into the rootstocks of Mr Green's pedigree rose plants when the young woman from the previous day burst back into the tent. Good morning, said Nanny Piggins brightly, as though this sudden arrival was entirely to be expected. You're a genius, gushed the young woman. Yes, agreed Nanny Piggins. A savant, a wonder, an inexplicable force of nature, gabbled the woman. All true, concurred Nanny Piggins. You mean to say that Nanny Piggins' predictions actually happened, asked Michael, being the first of the children to grasp the woman's strange ramblings. See for yourself, said the woman, holding up her cardigan. See what? asked Derek. Exactly, said the young woman. There's nothing there. The button is missing. All three children gasped in amazement. <gasps> but what about being hit in the head with a frozen fish? asked Samantha. 
Well, I went to a sushi restaurant last night, and as the chef was walking through the restaurant with a great big frozen tuna on his shoulder, someone called out to him. And when he turned around to say, hello, the tuna's tail whacked me in the head. Look, said the young woman, holding up her fringe and showing them a big black bruise right in the middle of her forehead. Amazing, said Samantha, but surely you didn't meet a man who's always wet. I went to the sushi restaurant on a blind date with a man who is a marine biologist. He goes scuba diving every day, said the young woman. So he's always wet, gasped Samantha. Exactly, said the young woman. Every word you said came true. I know, said Nanny Piggins. I don't do things I'm bad at. Can you do it again? Because I brought along some friends who want to have their fortunes read too, said the young woman. Of course, said Nanny Piggins. Send the first one in. And so Nanny Piggins' fortune-telling business took off. Word spread quickly. By the end of the week, there were queues wrapped around the block from five o'clock in the morning onwards. And amazingly, every single prediction Nanny Piggins made came true. She told the butcher he would accidentally cut off a pinky finger, and the next day he did. Luckily for him, it was not his own. It was the work experience, boys, and he was not disappointed. The doctor sewed it back on, and he had quite the story to boast about when he went back to school on Monday. She told a young, lonely man with a secret passion for flamenco dancing that he would meet the woman of his dreams if he went outside the tent and found the 17th person in the queue. And indeed, there was a lovely young woman with a secret desire to wear frilly gypsy dresses and rhythmically stamp her feet, standing right there. She told Hans the baker that he would find his television remote control if he looked in his freezer, and it was true. His wife, Princess Annabel, had put it there to punish him for leaving a very dirty ring around the bathtub. Now you have to understand, Hans and Annabel had a very loving, happy marriage, and she was a broad-minded princess who did not mind a bit of dirt. But in this instance, the dirt was in fact a caramel stain, where Hans had been secretly eating the leftover caramel eclairs from the shop without her. This was a sin that could not go unpunished. And she told Headmaster Pimplestock that he would have a very boring life, punctuated only by encounters with a glamorous and beautiful pig which admittedly any one of the children could have predicted. In just five days, she had raked in $20,001.09. Look at all this lovely money, said Nanny Piggins, heroically resisting the urge to roll in it. Now you can repay the museum, said Samantha happily. She hated trouble in all its forms. It weighed heavily on her that Nanny Piggins was banned for life from the transport museum. Even though Nanny Piggins was not bothered at all, she actually cheered and threw her hat in the air when she found out. Yes, I suppose I have to, conceded Nanny Piggins reluctantly. The curator at the transport museum seemed particularly unworthy of large amounts of cash money, but when she thought of the poor, broken cake stand, Nanny Piggins got a lump in her throat. We'll take it straight there this afternoon. But the fortune-telling business is going so well, there's nothing to stop us making our own $20,000 next week. I suppose not, admitted Samantha. It would be nice to have such a large amount of pocket money. You could even tell fortunes for two weeks and make $40,000, said Derek. Or three weeks and earn $60,000, said Michael. What a good idea, said Nanny Piggins. We could have a lot of fun with $60,000. We could travel the world trying exotic foreign cakes and learning new and exciting ice cream recipes. And build a monster robot that crushes cars, said Michael. Oh, yes, obviously that too, agreed Nanny Piggins. But their planning session was, at that very moment, 
interrupted when the lights in the tent flickered on and off. Smoke billowed in under the entry flap. Strange eastern music filled the air, and a doorbell rang. "'What's going on?' asked Derek. "'And why is there smoke in here?' asked Samantha. "'And who installed a doorbell in the tent?' asked Michael. "'Oh, dear,' said Nanny Piggins. "'I know of only one woman who uses such elaborate special effects before making her entrance. "'I think I am in trouble.' Not again, sighed Samantha. Derek, you had better open the front flap of the tent. And if you find a beautiful and exotic African sorceress there, do let her in, said Nanny Piggins, as she picked up a plate of chocolate ready to welcome her guest. Children, prepare yourselves. You're about to meet a real fortune teller, the one from the circus. A moment later, a beautiful and exotic sorceress glided into the tent. Nanny Piggins' predicting ability extended to knowing who was at the door. Hello, Madame Zandra. So good to see you, said Nanny Piggins politely. Sarah Piggins, boomed Madame Zandra in her beautiful, resonant voice. You should be ashamed of yourself. Oh, I am, Nanny Piggins assured her. Those with the gift of fortune-telling have a responsibility to uphold the rules of mystical power, said Madame Zandra sternly. When I taught you my secrets, you promised to abide by these rules. Sorry, I forgot. I must have had too little chocolate that day. The rules just slipped my mind, confessed Nanny Piggins. Then I shall remind you of them. Rule one. A fortune teller must always muddle her predictions up with gobbledygook and bunkum, intoned Sandra. Of course, said Nanny Piggins. If you tell fortunes accurately, you're going to put the rest of us out of business, said Madame Sandra. Do you really want a whole crowd of angry, unemployed fortune tellers on your doorstep? No, Madame Sandra said Nanny Piggins humbly. And rule two! Always keep your tent properly ventilated, <coughs> coughed Madame Zandra as she flapped her hand in front of her face, so you can use lots of smoke in your special effects. You're so right, Madame Zandra. I don't know what I was thinking, said Nanny Piggins. However, I predict that you won't punish me too severely, because you're so lovely, and you'd quite fancy some of the treacle tart I have hidden in my turban. And so Nanny Piggins closed her fortune-telling business. On the whole, she was glad to do it. While having $60,000 would be nice, having jobs was not. So it was much better to have just one instead of two. Madame Zandra left after making Nanny Piggins swear never to tell an accurate fortune again. Then Nanny Piggins and the children went down to the transport museum to pay for the damages. When they got to the museum, however, the most remarkable thing happened. For a start, they could not get into the building. And not just because Nanny Piggins was banned, but because there was police tape across the front entrance. Naturally, Nanny Piggins just ducked under the tape and went inside. Then, after several police constables tried and failed to crash tackle her in the lobby, the police sergeant intervened and told her that she did not have to repay the museum. It turns out Nanny Piggins had been entirely right. The World War I fighter planes were fake. The curator had sold the real planes over the internet and substituted them with forgeries he'd made in his own garage which is why they had petrol in their engines, because he had flown them into work early one morning before anybody else got in. So the curator was forced to pay for all the damages himself. 
This meant Nanny Piggins, Boris and the children returned home with the $20,000 still in their possession. The cash sat on the coffee table while they stared at it. It's such a lot of money, said Samantha reverentially. What are we going to spend it on, asked Derek. A honey farm, suggested Boris. A medium-sized monster robot, suggested Michael. No, said Nanny Piggins. While they are excellent suggestions, I have an even better idea. Later that day, Nanny Piggins, Boris and the children went out and bought their own refrigerated cake stand. They put it right in the middle of the kitchen. Nanny Piggins was so proud of their purchase, she actually polished it. And as you know, she did not normally believe in housework. Of course, the cake stand remained empty at all times. You see, it did its job too well. Whenever Nanny Piggins put a cake in there, it looked so good, how could she resist eating it? But she enjoyed knowing she could store a cake in it if she chose to. The end. Thank you for listening. To support this podcast, all you've got to do is buy a book by me, R.A. Spratt. There are a lot to choose from, from the Nanny Piggins series, the Friday Barn series, or the Pesky Kids series. And now there's the new book based on this podcast, Shockingly Good Stories. You can order any of these things through your local bookstore, or you can go to my website, raspratt.com, and click on the Book Depository banner. They've got all my titles, and they've got free international shipping. That's it for now. Until next time, goodbye. Oh, and if you're in Australia, have a happy book week. Bye.